We started last week looking at some of the, the big aims of the book, as well as understanding a little of the, of the background. Um, this week, we're getting into the, into the meat, into the heart of the letter. And we're going to consider this question, really. What does the Bible say to people who are having it hard? What does the Bible say to those who are undergoing trials and temptations? We all do. Christians are not exempted from suffering. What difference does knowing God through the Lord Jesus make when those hard times come? James has two instructions for us this uh, this afternoon. Don't despair when things are difficult. And don't be deceived by your desires. That's where we're going. Don't despair when things are difficult and don't be deceived by your desires. Let's jump in with the first of those as we get back into the passage. Don't despair when things are difficult. Let me read the opening verse or verse two of our passage. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That line has the capacity to take your breath away, I think. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Let me run through a list of some of the trials that people have shared with me over the past few weeks. A child from a a Christian church family who finds it hard being the only Christian in their class. A person who finds the physical discomfort that comes from disease and old age almost unbearable. Someone struggling with advice that came from a trusted source that has turned out to be bad advice and is dealing with the consequences. Someone who is separated from the ones that they love. Someone who is struggling with loneliness. Someone who is struggling with self-doubt. Someone who is struggling with being unsure of what the future holds and then consequently questioning previous decisions that they've made. Trials of many kinds. And James says, count these things as pure or highest joy. He's not saying that's the only way you should feel about these circumstances. But he says that like an accountant putting in his figures into his spreadsheet at the end of the month, you are to put these circumstances, circumstances like the ones that I've just described, you are to put them into the the credit category, that side of the balance sheet. They're black ink. They're positive. They're even joyful or to be considered so and it it feels paradoxical doesn't it it feels as though James has got this the wrong way trials produce sadness and misery not joy it feels almost perverse to ask that of people maybe you're already This afternoon, thinking about your current trials. How could I consider 
this to be pure joy. And yet, it's the command of God to his people, through James, his servant. So the question then is, well, how? How do we do that? Well, let's break it down and consider that the command to consider or to count these things as pure joy is one of four commands or four verbs that James gives us in this first part of the the section. Um, Verse 2 down to, to verse 12. Four doing words. And the other three, after this first one, consider, help us work out how it's possible to do this. So the first one, consider. The second one is no. The third, let. And the fourth, ask. Count it joy because of what you know. Look down at verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We're in May, which means that in the last couple of weeks, the cricket season has begun. Which also means that across the country, over the past few weeks, people have spent countless hours hitting cricket bats with cricket balls or with little mallets. Okay? This is called knocking in your new bat. Okay? This is, if you've never played cricket, this just feels really weird If you have played cricket, this is one of those things you think, well, of course you've got to knock in your new bat. And so people have been sat there in their homes and their cricket clubs doing this, holding their new bat and going bang, bang, bang for hours and hours and hours. I've no idea how it works, but it's basically designed to make your bat good, better. Maybe you hit the ball further. I genuinely have got no idea. But it it toughens it up. In the same way, James says, you know that faith that is tested gets stronger and lasts longer. If you were to look at older, maturer, godlier Christians... Maybe you've got somebody in mind almost immediately. You would find a person that bears the scars of trials. In some parts of the world, you would find people who physically bear the scars of having faced trials. But people hold emotional scars, psychological scars of having walked through difficult circumstances And have found that their faith has been strengthened. Trials have produced perseverance. A firmness, a certainty, a a sureness that this faith is viable and good and lasting and ultimately worth it. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then James says, let. Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We mentioned last week that James has got a a, a vibe of Jesus about him. And it's not surprising that the, the brother of Jesus begins to speak and write like Jesus. We know that Jesus told a lot of parables about seeds and planting and gardening and and agriculture and specifically about growing and the the patience that's required for something to come to to fruition to fullness and what James says here echoes that sense of patience and so he looks at how the testing of faith produces perseverance what does perseverance ultimately end up in it ends in maturity and completeness perseverance unlike the cricket bat isn't about never changing it's about being steadfast for a season knowing that the end results will be worth it a keep going mentality let let perseverance finish its work in the middle of your trials you've got to see that this is not the end that what you're feeling now what you're struggling with now is not the end a seed that's planted in the ground persevere when it perseveres won't end up being a seed it'll end up being a plant or a tree and one day it will be full grown and it'll be a plant or a tree that produces its own seeds but it's got to survive the winters and it's got to survive the times where there's not much water or not much sun or too much water or too much sun likewise the soul that perseveres in trust and faith in Jesus will one day not suffer will one day be complete. So don't expect to be changed in an instant. Here and now. Don't expect or think that there's a shortcut to becoming mature. But also don't be pessimistic. Don't be pessimistic in the middle of these trials that you'll never change. God finishes what he has started. James leans into this cycle and says, faith that is tested and faith that perseveres ultimately leads to mature faith. God saves to the uttermost those who put their trust in him. But how? How do we hang on? How do we persevere? Even as we know that God is working in our trials. Even as we try to be patient. What does it look like? How do I get through today? James says that one day we will lack nothing. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? This description of a mature and complete person and a mature and complete church. Will one day on that day lack nothing. But it's almost as though he anticipates the very reality of Christians now going, I lack lots. 
okay, you're telling me about this picture about one day where we'll be but, and lack nothing then, but I lack plenty now. And so our fourth verb, our fourth doing word is ask. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Again, echoing Jesus' promise about asking God, those who come in faith, ask and they will receive. How can we not be lacking? If we're honest about ourselves and our faith, who amongst us would dare to say, I lack nothing. I'm perfectly prepared for this season of, of hardship. James recognises that this is not supposed to be easy. Sometimes we can kid ourselves or we can look at other people and think, oh, I should be doing better. No, trials are not supposed to be easy. This character building that God is doing is not child's play. But God is on your side. That's what he's saying here. Ask God and he will give He's on your side. John Calvin said, Since we see that the Lord does not so require from us what is above our strength, but that he is ready to help us, provided we ask, let us therefore learn whenever he commands us anything to ask of him the power to perform it. Consider it all joy. Lord, I need your help. Because this is hard. Because there's no resolution in sight. Because the next hospital appointment is likely to be worse news than the previous one. Lord, help me. Help me because this situation with this person or that person doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Lord, help me. And God is a generous God. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. What a promise. You don't have to do this alone. The message of James here is not in your own strength. Go and do, be joyful in your misery. No, it's with God's help. You can consider these present trials or the future trials to be pure joy. Because God is working in them, in his perfect purposes. But there's a warning. James says, but when you come to ask, don't be like a wave in the sea. Unstable and double-minded. When he talks about waves, don't think about the wave at the seashore. Think about being on a boat out in the middle of the ocean. And the waves that are unpredictable, waves at the seashore are very predictable, aren't they? You can sit there and watch them and think, you know, watch them, the water going, trickling back down. And there's a small one, a small one, another big one coming. Here it comes. Now a wave in the middle of the ocean where a gust of wind can completely change this massive volume of water to come up in a massive swell. Or it can flatten or go left or right in any given moment. That's the picture of a person who, what James says, the opposite of believe They doubt. They doubt the one whom they are asking. James is not talking here about occasional 
struggle. He's talking about somebody who's in two different places when it comes to God and two different places when it comes to their life and their heart and their attitude and their desires. Liv and I were in London a couple of weeks ago and we visited Greenwich. We ran out of time to, to go to, to, to the, um, the observatory. But there's a place there in Greenwich Observatory where you can stand in a moment in two different hemispheres because that's the, where the timeline is. So you can have one foot in the Western Hemisphere and another foot in the Eastern Hemisphere. And it's that level of two-ness that James is coming after here. Somebody who, in the language of Jesus, is trying to serve two masters. Somebody who's half in, half out. James is going to come back to this idea of worldliness. But specifically here, when it comes to praying for wisdom, he says, you've got to be all in on God. And you can ask for help. Don't be half in, half out. Don't hedge your bets with God. God allows trials. God uses trials. And God teaches us that there can be no maturity unless he builds our character through these circumstances. And so here, James takes us into a practical example. One of his big themes of the letter is talking about the wealth that people have or the, the lack thereof. So verses 9 through 11, he, he dips into a worked out example. As he looks into the church, he sees people who are poor and people who are rich. And he sees the trials that come with both. And he says, will you trust God in the circumstances he has given you? Those that are poor, will you take pride in your poverty? Because you're rich, for you know God. And you know the promises that God has made to you. And then, maybe even more startling, he says to the rich, you can take pride in... Well, this is interesting. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. They should take pride, this sounds very like Ecclesiastes, they should take pride in their humiliation to be part of Christ's church. To have confidence not in your own ability to, to work your way out of things. But to have confidence in being a part of a people that have to be saved. That have to be rescued. There's a lot of discussion about those verses but I think that's where he's pushing it. What does it look like? To consider it pure joy with the trials that come through wealth or the lack of wealth. Don't despair at difficult circumstances. Instead, trust the God of perfect purpose. As we consider our trials, we need to remind ourselves and each other this is for good. 
This is not a mistake. This is not final. And God will help us when we ask him. Just look at verse 12. As James comes back to this idea of persevering. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He holds out this this glorious future for all those who stand firm, those who last, those who persevere. And he pictures a throne room and a coronation where God himself will crown his people with life. Everlasting and eternal, eternal life. Glorious in its length, but also glorious in its, its substance, in its the enjoyment of it. Trust the God who has promised that he will bring about that ending. Even when you're not yet there. This is the life of faith, isn't it? Trusting that God will do what he has promised even when we can't yet see it, even yet when we're not yet fully experiencing it. Okay, second point. Don't be deceived by your desires. We're going to add to verse 13. It's a long first point, I know. Now, James has shown us in the first part of this that the right way to look to God in the midst of our trials. But now he's going to say, But there's a wrong way to look to God in the midst of our trials. The wrong way is to do this. God, this is your fault. God, it was hard and I know I've not responded as I ought to have done. God, that was your fault. You made me do it. It's almost as though James has got in mind a small child. But it's the response of the heart. When things are tough and things are hard, when tempted, is how this section opens. Tempted in the trials that he's already been talking about. Let's go back to that list of trials that I I mentioned at the start. Let's think about how some of those can turn into temptation, into the opportunity and desire to respond wrongly. Think of the child from that Christian family who's finding it hard being the only Christian in school. They're tempted to, to begin to hide their faith. To deny that they're following Jesus. Tempted to do whatever they can to fit in with everybody else rather than following the commands of Jesus. Rather than having the, the bravery, the courage to take the heat for being different. Think about the person who's struggling with with physical illness, disease, old age. In that trial, they can be tempted to be bitter, to grumble against God, to believe that God doesn't care about them, that he's forgotten about them. Think about the person suffering from loneliness. 
And in that trial, that person could be tempted to find companionship through fantasy or through other sinful and lustful pursuits. In the midst of trials, temptation comes. Temptation to find a way out by ourselves. Temptation to find a distraction. Temptation to to step out of the firing line. And we can be tempted to self-justify our sinful actions by blaming God for the circumstances that we think caused this sinful response. But look where James tells us that the problem lies. And it's not with God, but it's with us. He asked his question throughout this section, what's God really like? It's almost as though he's saying, you see your trials and you feel them so clearly. But let me tell you clearly who God is. Look at verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Think of the purity of the person that that description can apply to. For those two things to be true of a person. A person who never takes the shortcuts. When temptation comes, it offers, doesn't it? Shortcuts, it offers easy wins, instant satisfaction. It's all about the now and the immediate. Think of the heart that at every turn has no truck with that. It's committed to the goods perfectly. There is nothing that evil can offer that will gain any traction with God. He cannot be tempted. How different that is from us. How easily we are tempted. If you want to see that worked out, fleshed out, go to Matthew chapter 4. Read the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil. And see Jesus' responses. See the purity of God in human flesh. He cannot be tempted by evil. It's not saying that the offer can't be made. He's just saying it will get zero response. Nor does he tempt anyone. There's nothing in God that seeks to bring other people down for his own pleasure or to boost his own ego. Think of the way that we might try and entice other people to act out so that we look better by comparison or just because we feel inferior. So we just want to bring other people down. We can be like that with our thoughts and our words, can't we? But not God. He does not tempt anyone. There is no desire in God that wants people to sin and James turns our eye to this God and then he says but look a little bit closer to home 
Look at you. Look at me. What are we really like? Verse 14, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The inner workings of our hearts and minds are not as pure as we might think they are, or as we might want to believe ourselves or want other people to believe. Imagine for a second that trials of various kinds are like grappling hooks. You know, one of those hooks where you attach it to a rope or you throw it in, it latches onto something and secures. Well, when the grappling hook is thrown at God, it finds nothing to hang on to. It gets no purchase at all. But when that grappling hook comes past us and our hearts, it finds all sorts of things to grab onto. Ridges and crevices. And, or maybe better than that, think of a fishing hook. All too often, the fishing hook is lowered into the water and we are like fish, desperate to take hold of it. That's what our hearts are like. Full of evil desires that are easily enticed and then caught up. Look at the gruesome cycle that James describes when we give in to temptation. He pictures it like a a birth. He says, verse 15, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It is inevitable. That when our sinful hearts and the evil desires within them act out, the result is sin and death. Opposition to God. And then the right consequence of God's response. And so James says, don't be deceived. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be blind about yourself and about God. See how good God is and be mindful about the inner workings of your own heart. To blame God for your sin is an act of wickedness. Don't be deceived by your desires. Instead, be thankful To the God of good gifts. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the father of the heavenly lights. Who does not change like shifting shadows. I just think this is amazing. Because the context of this passage. We read a verse like that and we think. Oh the God of good gifts. God has given us this and that and this relationship and and this physical thing and material thing and but in the context of this passage what is the good thing that God has given to us I think it's trials I think it's tough things that are producing in us perseverance which will lead to maturity It's easy to look at, and and we do it often, and we rightly do it often, look and say, wow, God has blessed us in so many ways. 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because your Father, the one who loves you and has worked in you to save, has given you these trials for your good. And all good gifts come from him. Don't blame him for your sinful response. The antidote to evil desires is thankful hearts. To look to God and say, thank you for what you have given me. Thank you that I know, whether I understand it or not, whether I'm still lacking in wisdom or not, I know that you give me what is good, what I need. And sometimes that feels like maybe a child at some point growing to the place where they say, I recognise, dear parents, that you were right to give me vegetables and not always ice cream. We always want ice cream. We always want dessert. But God gives us what we need. He is the giver of all good gifts. A famous preacher, Spurgeon. I think he's... He said this, the wave of temptation may even wash you higher up upon the rock of ages, it's a name for God, so that you cling to it with a firmer grip than you have ever done before. And so again, where sin abounds, grace will much more abound. These difficult, awful circumstances may be being used, are being used by God so that we cling closer to him, that we see more of his goodness. Trials should lead us back to God with thankfulness. And we will find not just that we have put these trials in a category of pure joy, but we will begin to experience the joy that comes through them. We have so much to thank God for. Look at verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all creation. He's talked about one birth cycle, hasn't he? Evil desires, given into sinful temptations that grow into sin. And full grow into death. But he says God has put you on a different cycle. God has given us birth. Life. Through the word of truth. Through Jesus himself. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Does God intend bad, intend bad for you? No. No. Has God got a plan for you? Yes. Is that plan often slow and hard to see? Yes. But God is working. He has given us birth. And the end result of this birth is not death, but life, life everlasting. So trust in God. Be thankful to God for his good gifts, even the hard ones. We're going to have a few seconds now between when I sit down and the band come back up. Why don't we take the opportunity in our own hearts to thank God 
Maybe for the thing that you've been struggling with the most. Maybe ask him to give you wisdom. That you might consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that God is at work.